You're listening to a Same But Different podcast. Hello, my name is Ilmarie Braun and I work for Same But Different. We use the arts for positive social change and our experiences of telling unheard stories over the years has highlighted the need for a global publication that truly offers diverse voices through art, beauty, health and sharing inspirational real life stories. We are incredibly excited to launch Rarity Life, a brand new online publication that offers those affected by rare disease, disability and cancer the opportunity to create content that is truly inclusive. As part of Rarity Life, we are also creating a podcast series, Rarity Life Heard, to ensure that our interviews are accessible to a wider audience. In this episode, I speak to Henry Fraser, who was just 17 years old when a tragic accident left him paralysed from the shoulders down. I should start by saying I feel like a stalker because obviously I've looked at your social media, I've Googled you and I've read your book now. So now I feel like I, I've got lots of questions, but I also feel like a complete stalker. So uh, oh, that's, that's fine. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> so your family of four boys and, you know, you talk about the fact that your parents really used sport early on to get some of your energy out and you've all obviously been very sporty. But you also talked about the fact that, you know, you had loved art initially. And from my stalking, I know that your dad has a creative job, a creative agency. Is that right? Yeah. Gosh, uh, 30 odd years ago now, I think it is. Um, And it was a graphic design agency at the start. So, yeah, his whole life has revolved around design and all these things. So, yeah, it's kind of been a huge part of our lives. And my mum's got a passion for interiors as well and things and and colour and kind of vibrancy. And so, yeah, it's definitely kind of rubbed us, rubbed off on us boys um, over the years, I think. Yeah. If you, so you mentioned in, in, in one of your posts and also elsewhere that you said sort of 14-year-old you was starting to fall out of love with art. Can you see why that was looking back? So, yeah, when I was young, loved it. I was always kind of just making things, drawing things, painting all the time, constantly. My oldest brothers be outside in the garden when we were young. I'd be inside building stuff with Lego and Jupiter and all these things. And then when I went to secondary school, first couple of years, did really, still really enjoyed it. Um, so I decided to continue on for GCSE. And then at that point, my rugby is also starting to go really well. So I was having to commit a lot of time to that and be in the gym and then rugby training and all these things. And studying art for GCSE and AS level and A level requires a lot of time requires a lot of effort and at that point I wanted to be outside I wanted to be in the gym I didn't want to be stuck in a classroom thinking about art 24-7 and it was more just trying to get through each lesson as best I could rather than actually enjoying it and so I just really hated it I don't really like the way art's taught at many schools it's quite a restrictive process when art's the most subjective kind of thing going especially at school because it's all it's mostly fine arts you do so it's the doors should be open to anything it should be kind of you leading your own path through things and showing process and showing ideas and work but when they restrict you to kind of their rules and their titles and all these things it, so I just yeah really didn't enjoy it at all so when I had an accident it never occurred to me that you know a few years down the line it become a huge huge part of my life I mean it's a it's a question you almost can't answer but it would be really 
interesting to to think like if if you if you hadn't had your accident and life had just carried on on the trajectory you're on you know the sport could well have taken you in a completely different or on the continued you on that pathway and you might never have discovered this part of yourself but equally you mentioned that mentally you feel like you're stronger than now than before your accident and I wonder if there might have still come a time in your life where like a crisis in confidence meant you did start looking inwards and and finding art again yeah I mean I, yeah I do say at the moment it's kind of without the accident I wouldn't have gone back to art ever mm. yeah but like you said I know if something did like something like that did happen then it, I probably could have easier I think it was always going to be in there inside me. It's always going to be, it was always would have been a part of me. Yeah. But whether I would have kind of turned back to it as a serious thing in my life. Yeah, no, I mean, it's impossible to know. It just struck me as interesting because, you know, again, one of the questions I had was about, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And I think for a 14 year old, 15 year old, 16 year old boy, you don't really see very many, art role or artists as role models whereas sport be it rugby or any other sport is so prevalent that it's a lot harder to imagine being an artist and I wonder if that's why it's for some people it it diverges away from a tangible dream Uh, definitely I know boys schools are that as well so it's kind of very kind of I guess one track in a way the usual kind of go to school go to uni get a, a job in the city or something that type of thing yeah, but my parents never would have kind of forced me not to do art. They, I think they, they would actively encourage it because of their love of it. Yeah, I knew that if I wanted to do it, they'd be behind me and kind of help me and be there for me as much as I can. But yeah, so and I haven't had many friends stick with that line. A lot of the people I've kind of in my art class and things, probably one, two, maybe at most across two different schools, two different art classes, all these things. It's which is annoying because it's something that I think people should encourage to do more. It kind of opens up a whole new world. Do you feel like an artist? No, I, I don't know. No, not, not really. Mm. And what about a writer? Yeah, not really. I think because I've kind of done a couple of books. I've done the art. I do public speaking. I kind of feel like I haven't kind of nailed one of those things yet to really kind of call myself a writer or artists which is weird because if you had if you hadn't had your accident and you'd stayed with rugby and you played rugby you'd be a rugby player and you have published books and you are selling art so you are both an artist and a writer but you don't feel as comfortable identifying as that no I still I yeah <laughs> I feel like these they're like you know like titles you've got to kind of earn and I've only been doing the art for uh, what seven years now I released my first book four and a half years ago. So I'm still kind of, I feel like I'm still kind of surface level at the moment. I haven't really kind of gone too deep into it. And I don't know, maybe one day I might turn around, call myself an artist. And, or a writer. Yeah. All those people out there who, you know, who would love to be published, you're definitely a writer. So it's more how, how we tell ourselves things about ourselves, maybe. Yeah. And I think as well, because it's something I never thought I did, would ever do. It's not something I ever really actively wanted to do. Jeez, yeah, definitely not pre-accident. Uh, post-accident, yeah, again, it's, I guess, I don't know, I feel like kind of releasing books, it hasn't really sunk in yet. Though. Yeah, well, it's an incredible achievement. I think one of the things you said in your book, well, there were two things and they were sort of similar, but they were related to different things. So 
early on you said about after your accident you really learned to listen to what people were saying but also what they weren't saying and so listening and hearing are things that we're often not very good at and that was something you really learned how to do and then likewise later on you you talk about the fact that you know you hadn't really ever enjoyed English but when you were rereading the cards or the letters from people you were able to think in a different way about how people were using language to really convey a message and how important that was. Yeah well I think because early on um, when I had the ventilator first put on I pretty much couldn't talk at all so communication we had to kind of work out a whole new way of communicating and things. And I would did spend a lot of time kind of lying there in bed listening to everything going on around me. And you kind of you do start to pick up certain things, certain, you know, it's like they always say kind of when one sense goes, others kind of pick up and away. I think when I was hearing, I was listening, I was kind of engaging with people diff- differently and understanding people differently. I know, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago or something, I was because I've just moved into a new place and so going through a load of old stuff that mum and dad keep bringing from the house and I actually found all the cards that people sent. I've still got every single one of them. Looking back, I forgot actually how many people had sent, people I'd never met. Just kind of this whole array of cards and yeah, reading their words and kind of really thinking about the power of words and writing and all these things. I mean, I've kind of pride at every single card, every single letter I received because it was that feeling, that connection with someone and them wanting to reach out, be there for me, be there for my family and support us. And yes, had a whole new appreciation for for words and writing and you know what people were really wanting to say. No, and, and that's where you know you're you've said about the accident sort of making you stronger mentally and that before you were anxious and, and in a different way. You know, I think the accident also unlocked that potential in you to to understand the meaning and value in words and in writing and expression and creativity in a way that lots of people don't. For me, that's what made the book so, you know, I hate the word inspiring, but it it was that inspired me, the fact that, you know, you can think again about how you approach language and sharing and communication because they do have such an ability to impact people. Yeah, oh, definitely. And it's something that kind of, I've really had to learn and when I write you know I'd, in the cards the one thing people always were was honest and open and wanting to share and if they felt sad about what happened or upset they let me know and I think that's something that I've always tried to carry on through everything I've written everything I've said and honesty about me about who I am before accident afterwards about the tough times I've been through I've never held anything back because I think it's good that people know it and people can understand it better and understand everything I've been through and what's made me me. And I think that's something people can relate to. And especially after the first book, the number of emails and things I got from people who had been through extremely tough times themselves, whether it be kind of divorce, someone close to them dying, fall out with someone who they've been close to for many years, People that drink, drug issues, all these things. It's got bombarded with emails of people telling me their story and them saying that they had one thing they loved it was the honesty I'd shared and that they wanted to share. And they sent me these emails and most of them would never ask me to kind of take the time to get back to them or be part of their lives. They just wanted to be honest and open and share their lives with me and writing it down was a big help. 
yeah. just the act of writing it and sending it, they're able to kind of, you know, let go in a way and open themselves up and, and feel and something they haven't been able to do before. And I felt hugely privileged and honoured that, you know, people were turning to be a complete, a complete stranger to them. But again, it's the power of words. It's a huge thing that I think people should never underestimate. Yeah. Did you find a strong sort of community of people to to use as a as a guide early on, or did that take time? It took time. There was Matt and another guy called James Taylor. He was kind of similar level to me. He's got a bit of arm movement, um, but he was someone you know we spoke to quite often. But Matt was a huge one for me. So after my accident, my whole kind of MO and hospital was just kind of physio and get as fit as strong as I can use that as my way to improve and get better and get out of hospital. And then when I came home, it was the same physio twice a week and just kind of this single track mind of just physio, physio, physio and leading up to going back to school. And I hadn't thought it really occurred to me about thinking about the future, about life, about what I'm going to do, what I'm going to, who I'm going to be or anything. And then I guess it was probably 10 months after the accident. I think it was, we went up to see Matt at his house and you know, he had this fantastic home. It was his house. He was living there. He had his team of carers around him, but it was his house. And suddenly I thought to myself, oh, wow, this is, this guy's actually living. This guy's, he's not just focusing on physio. He's not, he's actually living his life. He's enjoying it. He's, and that was a huge kind of moment for me to start thinking about that and start doing those things. And even though I started to go back to school and finish my levels, it was something that I think I've definitely tried to, to carry with me and think a lot about. Um, over the years so that just seeing him just spending an afternoon with him was huge <laughs> you mentioned before um, about just moving into your own house so how is that how is life not at home uh yeah amazing you know I've, I love living with my parents they've been a massive help for me in my life they've been they're there for me all the time and I'm only six doors down from them anyway so <laughs> I have to say, the way you describe your family life, I mean, I'd want to move in. There's always people coming around. There's loads of lovely food. It sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It's what I think it's one of those lies that, you know, growing up, you kind of always, there's always this, that dislike towards your parents. Like, oh, they didn't let me do this. They didn't let me do that. And then when you get a bit older, you can look back and think, actually, no, life was, life was, uh, life was pretty good. But yeah, no, I mean, it's been, I think it's been coming for a little while, that need to move that kind of that new, I guess, new challenge for me. It's just nice to have my own space. You know, yeah. my friends don't need to worry about being in my parents' house or things like that. It's just my space. It's- One of the questions I'd asked was was around space and your carers. So presumably you have somebody there 24-7. Yeah. So how, do, how does that work in, in terms of you making sure that you have your space? Do you have an agreed time frame where they're present or do you call them as you need? Like, how do you manage your own personal space alongside the fact that you need them physically there to do certain things? Yeah, so, I mean, that's something that, you know, took a little while to kind of get right as well is, you know, when you're having carers living, it's a very different, strange situation and it takes a little while to kind of get that right and it definitely took me. I think early on we kind of let it become too informal, too kind of, too friendly. And it's not that I'm not friends with my carers. I am friends. We get on. You, I mean, it's a very intimate job. You kind of get to know each other very well. But when it was too kind of informal, things start, that's when things start to go wrong. Things yeah. weren't happening right. So we kind of then drew a line a bit and said, you know, okay, they've got, they've got their own bedrooms. 
they've got TV, Wi-Fi. So that when I do have friends over and stuff as well, we can kind of keep that separation. And then, yeah, so what kind of, once my like morning routine is done, then it's, they just come every hour to check on me. And then when I need to cook, we'll go cook and then I'll eat and then be every hour. And so we keep quite, I keep quite a strict kind of time frame on these things. But again, it just takes time. It takes a lot of patience. It takes, but yeah, I think at the moment things are working quite well in the way I have it. So, have you found um, that you've moved more towards activism over time? Yeah, I think as my, I guess my platforms increase, and I kind of feel it be irresponsible of me not to use that to talk about these issues. And you know, ninety percent of the time, there is a good response. There is a People get do understand it, but you always see the followers drop a bit after some of those tweets. Sometimes either they're not they're not there, they're not following me for that reason, or you know they're obviously massively against it. But for me, it's I just think it's quite a simple process. You know, you give people the tools they need to live, and then they can go out and spend money and contribute to the economy. They can work and pay taxes and contribute and. You know, their taxes almost paying for their own care and these things. Yeah. It's quite a simple kind of process, but it's one that just gets attacked far too often. And you kind of hear tragic, completely tragic stories of people literally having to, in the morning, choose between a cup of tea or having a shower. And it's like, no one should, no one in their lives should have to make that decision to be in that position. And yeah, it's kind of, yeah, gets me. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it's it's yeah, it's utterly unjust that you know it's a fight for everything, and the the things that you think would be just automatically there aren't necessarily. And you know, there are there are amazing charities out there. You know, again from your book, I know that you had some great pieces of equipment funded through your trust, and you know, for people doing fundraising and stuff. But so many of those things, there there are people who don't have that support network around them. And then they can't access any of those things. And it's it also takes away from the potential they have to contribute, like you said. And so it's counterproductive. Exactly. You've just got people falling out of the economy all constantly. Yeah. And then, yeah, and uh, yeah, like you said, I've been kind of insanely lucky to have the support network to other people around me that I've had. But with the right funding, people can have that. People can speak to people that can have you know, people were really wanting to help them. And I think just that that knowledge of knowing that, you know, you've got people out there wanting to be there for you, wanting to help, is huge. And when you've got a government that only wants to do the complete opposite, you feel kind of unwanted, unloved. Like, you feel like you're kind of worthless. And, you know, again, no one should have to feel, feel like that. No, and I, I think that's where having a so a strong supportive network around you, for example, is key because although the messages sort of coming from above are that, you know, that that, you know, like say social care is always what's being cut, disability rights eroded, et cetera. But actually the love and outpouring of support you had around you hopefully means that you can see that for the, for most people that's that's what's important is being a good human and supporting people in the ways that they need it at the time that they need it. Oh, definitely. And I think one of the big things I have learned over the years is that, you know, 
99% of people out there are good people. They do want to help. They do want to be there for you. They want to support you and do these things. And I think that's something that people really need to understand as well is that you know, most people are good. No matter kind of what you read in the, the papers or whatever, yeah. it's, that's not life. The reason why that's huge is because they're kind of minor incidents that happen rarely. It would be boring if they were to report that everyone is good and having yeah. all their lives and doing things. That's not going to make the money. So it's, people read and see bad stuff's happening and assume people are bad. And it's, it's weird, though, because in a funny way, social media can give us the opposite. So whilst the news sort of focuses on the negative, you know, we we come across things like somebody who paints beautiful pictures with their mouth through social media platforms, which often can be much better at elevating the good things and the positive things and, you know, linking in supportive communities. You know, if you follow one person then you can see somebody else that does something and it all links in a much more holistic, supportive way. Oh, definitely. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons why I do use social media because it is, there is that connection. There is that, you can find people to kind of get behind or, you know, enjoy kind of what they're doing and, Again, like I said, kind of social media does get a bad rap most of the time, but you know, my experience on it has been again 99% good. Yeah. And I know it's the same for most people, but it's uh yeah, I think it's a fantastic place for people to kind of find other people like yourselves. It's a quick, easy access to to life, I think. Yeah. What draws you to paint something? What makes you think that's that's the next image I'd like to do? Again, to most it's kind of a bit of like an organic thing. It's whether I'm just you know, flicking around on social media and I see a, a picture of an animal or, you know, a sunset or something like that. And then, I'm like, okay, that looks, I might, that might work well as a painting. Or if I'm watching TV and I see something. And so then I've got my iPad and I'll scroll through Google images and I'll start looking at, start looking for more photos and kind of create this kind of mental library in my own head and then try and find kind of ones that I really like and think, with my style, this could kind of match up quite well. So I do kind of, yeah, do put a lot of kind of background work into something before I actually paint it. How long does the actual painting process take, or does that really vary? Yeah, that varies big time. So the one I recently finished, the Flamingos one, that was, uh, that was three days uh, painting. One I really enjoy painting will take you know, a couple of days maybe. Ones I really hate painting can be like a week. Um, you mentioned like, a, was it a boat that just wouldn't work where you had to change the colour? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so presumably was that one of the ones that took ages? Mm, and it's one of the ones as well that I kind of stubbornly was like, I'm gonna, I, I can make it work. I can't bring it back. <laughs> and then you just get to the point of no return and you're just like, jeez, I wasted two hours kind of trying to, trying to win it back. So I've become better at, if something's not going right, I've just... Tell myself it's not going right, then it start again. Especially now, I really do think about it a lot. Even when I'm not painting it, if I wake up early in the morning, I'm flying in bed, I'll think about it and I'll kind of in my own head visualize it and think about the process and what I'm going to do next with it. And yeah, it does occupy a lot of my mind. <laughs> that was one of the questions actually I had about the writing. Was it the same, was it the same way that you allowed like the ideas about what you might have in your book to sort of germinate so by the time you were ready to put them to paper you'd already kind of worked them out yeah well I think first book was because the first book was just memoir basically so it was, it was just trying to remember what happened and try and plan that in 
in a way that people would hopefully find interesting or, you know, whatever something anyone wants to take from it. Um, so then it was then thinking about, oh, there's lots of stuff. Obviously, I, was in, I didn't get out of the hospital bed for two months. So there's a lot of stuff kind of going around that I didn't know. So, you know, so then speaking to friends and family members and asking them kind of what was happening and all these things. So building from there. So, yeah, the pricing, I didn't think so much about when I wasn't writing. Writing was just when I was there, that was it. And then I wouldn't really think about it so much. Um, but the painting, yeah, I don't know why. It's probably, I think it's just the visual side of it does really gets in my head. <laughs> Until it's finished, it's in my head, and then, then I can let it go and then move on to the next one. I wouldn't have necessarily thought they were so different, but they are very different creative processes. Yeah, I'm not sure why I kind of take a different, different approach to them. I don't know whether it's, it's that kind of comfort of, you know, painting something I've always done. I know one thing with that, the writing, I'd rather not let that kind of dwell in my head because then I might start overthinking it and start kind of questioning what, what I've been doing and things. Um, so yeah, I'd, I think I just, yeah, when I wasn't doing it, I would park it and come back to what I needed to. It sounds to me as though if, if pushed, you'd be more comfortable saying I'm an artist than saying I'm a writer. If I had to choose one, it would be artist, yes. Thank you so much. It's been amazing talking to you. Thank you very much. That was a great chat. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Rarity Life Heard. I absolutely love talking to Henry. He was charming, open, honest, and also very humble about his work and about what he's achieved. But what he's achieved is actually truly remarkable and would be something that any one of us would be proud of. We hope you enjoyed listening to Henry just as much as we enjoyed talking to him. To find out more, you can follow Henry on Instagram and Twitter under the username Henry Fraser Zero, where you will also find details about how to buy his mouth art and his two best-selling books. To see more of the work we do, you can visit our exhibitions on our website and you can also find out more about our support services there. To visit, just look for Same But Different. Mm-hmm.